welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, begins a new series called Missing Christmas. And you can find our message outline and many other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood Church app. Christmas time is here. None of you needed to be told that, do you? I think the earliest signs I saw of it were sometime in October. Anyone see it in September? Yes. So we're already saturated, aren't we? Christmas cards, decorations, Christmas music. Some stations play nothing but Christmas music during this season, and, and I enjoy that. Shopping, television shows, Wonderful movies. The Hallmark Channel has these movies you just can't quite figure out. You don't know who's going to fall in love with whom. You don't, I mean, you just, will there be Christmas? I don't, I don't know. But lots of concerts, parties to go to. But despite all of these visible expressions, we're in danger of missing Christmas. You see, truly, Christmas, the Mass of Christ, is only about one thing. The birth of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. The one who came to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. And if you don't grasp that, and I might say if you're not grasped by it, you're missing Christmas. That's the name of this series, this December series, Missing Christmas. And this month, we will focus on several people who were very close by the birth of Jesus. But they missed its supernatural and its eternal significance. The first person I'll focus on is one that most of us know as the innkeeper. You know his story. The innkeeper sent the couple away when they arrived on a cold night with Mary astride a donkey and already in labor. Six, seven centimeters. (laughs) Because all of his rooms were already rented. So they were occupied. Is that the story? Is that the story, Kat? The couple was then fortunate to find a shelter in a stable because of the overcrowding of this city, and that's where Jesus was born. Isn't that the story? Take out your message guide, and the outline will be on the first two panels. The theme verse for today, and this is from the New International Version, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, strips of cloth, and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, if you've been around Brookwood a few Christmases, you know that I believe that the cultural 
understanding, even the church understanding of this story is mistaken and confused. But in the true story, there was a person who hosted the young couple who I believe missed the true significance of the birth that happened right before him. So what we want to do is we want to take the principle that we've just learned in studying the life of Jesus for the last year and we've learned to examine what the scripture says. Not what the notes say, not what the stories say, not what Perry says, the preacher says. What does the scripture say? And about this story, we want to read the text to avoid a romanticized version of the story and instead to see the reality of the incarnation. So let's look at how the host missed Christmas. First, reception doesn't denote relationship. Now, I'm using this New Living translation, the one we sell. I think it's $5. Maybe it's 10 So, So I'll tell you that I am reading on page 188. Or one, I mean, no, 821. And now and then I'll call out those numbers if you're using this Bible. But whatever version, even electronic. Follow along with us. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. That was for tax purposes. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, this isn't Syria as we know today, although it's virtually the same location, but it was the name of the province established by the Caesar Augustus. And it would have included modern-day Syria, but it also included Israel. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. It would have been probably 80 to 90 miles, maybe as much as 100, depending on which route was taken. The most direct route from Galilee to Bethlehem would, be, would have been on the west side of the Jordan River. But it was very hilly and harsh and difficult. So very often people would actually cross the Jordan River, travel down the length of it on the east side, where it was much flatter, but may have been 20 miles longer. So somewhere, this trip was somewhere between 80 and 100 miles, depending on the route. Now, for the census, citizens throughout Israel had to return to their ancestral home, which is where their family came from. It was where their tribal lands were located. Remember, all Jews were part of a tribe originally, and each tribe was given some section of land. So they had to go back to where their particular family member, one forefather, we use the word, was from. But the census brought everyone in the family line who originated in Bethlehem. So it wasn't only people that were in David's line. It was the lines of everyone who was from there. And this was a small village. At the time of Jesus' birth, it would have numbered somewhere between 300 and 1,000. But imagine 
if everyone that lived there years before and then their families expanded and spread out all over the country. So all of these people were coming back in. Now, Joseph returned to Bethlehem to register because he was a member of the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David. But where would he stay is the question in such an overcrowded town. Now, let me teach you a little bit about Mideastern culture, which is true today, but certainly was true at the time of Jesus' birth. Lineage is important. Ancestors are remembered and respected. If you'll look, Jesus' lineage is spelled out two different times. It's spelled out in Matthew chapter 1. It's also spelled out in Luke chapter 3. One of the, one of the lineages is, is through to Joseph. The other is through to Mary. Because it was important who you're related to. What was your family line? So when Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, people, even if they didn't know him, they would know his father. They would know his grandfather. You ever been back to your parents' hometowns and, and the people say, I remember him, I remember him. Well, that's the way it would have been when Joseph arrived. And so his relatives, what do relatives do at Christmas time? They open their homes and everyone gets to stay there. Who has guests coming? I don't know. This is for hands. Who has guests coming? Do they stay in motels or hotels or they stay in your house? Yeah, overloaded, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up now. I grew up in a house that, that didn't approximate 2,000 feet. Anybody else? With one restroom. One bathroom. We had two when I was a teenager. But even so, when people came to town, where'd they stay? On the floor, yes. And my mother had this way. My mother, y'all know, my dear mother passed away just a month ago. She would say, I'll make you a pallet. Y'all ever heard that? I'll make. Now that sounds a lot better than it was. What it meant is she was going to fold up a quilt on the floor, and that's where you would sleep. But her phrase, and I'm sure the phrase of yours and your mother's was, we will make room. We will make room. Don't worry about it. We will make room. Somebody will be laying on the kitchen table, but we will make room. <laughs> so the cultures weren't that different. And these people would have opened their homes to Joseph because not only did they care about lineage and ancestry and relatives, but it was part of the law of Moses that you would host travelers who had nowhere to stay. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. You know, I think for our culture has gravitated toward convenience way too much. Would you agree with that? And so today, if you think, well, I don't have enough beds, so why don't y'all stay in a hotel? You would not dare say that to a relative, would you? You would act like that pallet was preferable to a hotel bed. But you know, I think God expects us to show hospitality to each other, particularly to travelers, particularly to newcomers, to those from out of town. And, you know, I think this, this program, Safe Families, is a good expression of that. It's a little bit of a shame that such a program is even needed, isn't it? 
It seems like we would just naturally so take in people with needs. But it's a good program that can help you take a step toward hospitality that I think is God-pleasing, and it reflects his nature. Now, since Joseph not only was from this town, Bethlehem, but he was a descendant of King David. So he would have had some extra esteem because he was of royal blood. Doesn't mean he, he was important or prosperous individually, but he was out of the line of David, so everyone would welcome him. He certainly would have found a place to stay with a relative, but it may have been small, cramped, and uncomfortable. Just like when all the relatives show up in your 1,200-foot house. But you make room, don't you? You make room. Not only would Joseph be warmly welcomed, so would his son. Jesus was born and recognized and received as a descendant of David. But not as the Messiah. Look at John 1 on the screen. He came into the very world he created. But the world didn't recognize him. Now they did recognize him as the, as the son of Joseph. Jesus barred Jonah. So what does this mean? It means they didn't recognize him as the son of God. He came to his own people. Even they rejected him as Messiah, not as Joseph's son. Jesus was accepted as Joseph's son. He was, he was received as a descendant of David. But his true identity was disputed. It was rejected throughout his life. Here's evidence of it from Matthew 13. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom? And the power to do miracles. Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and all his sisters live right here among us. So where did he learn all these things? And then look at this surprising response. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. They didn't dispute who he was. But they didn't want him to be anything more than what they thought. His father's a carpenter, probably actually a mason. The word includes both in the Greek. And he is awful uppity to act like he's more than that. They received the son of Joseph. They didn't receive the son of God. That first Christmas, Joseph and I believe his son Jesus were warmly welcomed by a homeowner, accommodated with hospitality. But they never recognized who he truly was, the Messiah from God. You know, when we receive the story of Christmas, when we even accept the true identity as it's written in this Bible, as it's reported, that doesn't necessarily mean that we've entered relationship with him. In order to have relationship with him, we must be what? Born again. 
1 Corinthians 12, 3. And we continue from John 1. But all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to enter relationship with him, to become children of God. And they are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. Some translations say are human decision, but a birth that comes from God. So here's the question. Have you accepted, even received the facts of Jesus' life without experiencing a relationship with him that's two-way? If so, you might be missing Christmas. Another reason that the host missed Christmas is that compassion doesn't produce conversion. Conversion just means being born again. That's all it means. Converted from lost to saved. Converted from unregenerate to regenerate. Verse 5 on 822. He took with him Mary, his fiance. Now, she wasn't his fiance, right? What was she? His betrothed, who was now obviously pregnant. Now, in first century Israel, betrothal was a legally binding agreement, but much stronger than engagement in our culture. I think it's unfortunate in our culture that we've started using the word fiancé to mean that two unmarried people are living together. Because engagement and fiancé really mean there is a formal relationship. There's a ring, there's a, there's a plan for a wedding. You see what I'm saying? But in this culture, betrothal was even stronger than formal engagement in our culture. It lasted a year. It meant that the bride and groom were officially pledged to each other, but they didn't live together, and any sexual contact was completely forbidden. In fact, they may have had no personal contact at all until the time of the wedding. Now, as head of the family, Joseph was required to go. But usually the woman didn't have to go. The children wouldn't go. The whole family would go. The head of the household, Joseph, would go alone. So why did Mary go? Now, I can tell you that historically there was at least one instance when women over the age of 12 traveled to register to pay a poll tax in the Roman province of Syria, which included Israel. But it's, and it's possible that she was compelled to go. But it may be that Joseph brought Mary with him to shield her from mistreatment. To protect her from the malicious gossip and the cruel speculation about her surprising and scandalous pregnancy. It might be that her family even rejected her. They would have been shocked, remember? And how hard would it have been to believe how she was impregnated? So you can understand, have you ever been falsely accused of something? And yet there was someone who agreed with you. Wasn't that the one you tended to stay with? Well, he knew the story. Because an angel had appeared in a dream and told him the conception was by the Holy Spirit. So it seems natural, doesn't it, that she would want to stay as close to Joseph as possible. And when he went out of town, she went too. 
Now, it doesn't say it in the scripture. And you know, when I tell you my version, you always get to think about it and discard it if you don't agree with it. But let's think more deeply about this text, you see? Matthew 1, 20 and 21. I also don't believe that the people were indifferent toward this young pregnant woman. I believe they would have been concerned when she showed up very pregnant because she was also a descendant of King David. She would have had a level of importance despite what they thought about how she was impregnated. They may not even understood all that. But I believe because of just the nature of the Jewish faith and the way they expressed hospitality and kindness, they would have sought to provide her adequate shelter and also the care that she would need. And then at verse 6, and while they were there, now what that implies is some time lapsed, doesn't it? And while they were there, but I thought that she showed up in the, with snow on the ground and she's already in labor and she's about ready to burst right then. No. There was some um, lead time. She showed up a little bit ahead. We don't know how long. It may have been days. Perhaps even longer than that. The time came for her baby to be born. But if it was several days... If there was nowhere for her to stay, Joseph could have just traveled back to the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Mary had already been there. And remember, Elizabeth was told also why Mary was pregnant. So that would be another comfortable place that she could go. And it was only about seven miles away. Why are you telling us all this, Perry? You're confusing the dickens out of me. Because we need to understand what is really going on here. If there's nowhere to stay in Bethlehem, she could have gone somewhere else nearby with people that loved her and knew her. Luke 1, 39 through 45. But perhaps neither of those are the case. Perhaps Mary and Joseph, being devoted Jews, simply knew the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. It was from a prophecy in Micah 5 too. And so they traveled there so the child would be born. Whatever the specific human reason, the truth here is that God sovereignly arranged the circumstances to fulfill his prophecy, even causing an unbelieving king to declare a census at precisely the right time. Proverbs 21.1 says that God can move the king's heart like he turns a river or a stream. You know, isn't it interesting? When we get in a tough scenario, we go into overdrive. Sometimes we, we argue, sometimes we push, sometimes we plead, sometimes we manipulate and often forget to pray and forget that whatever the scenario, God can turn the heart of even an unbelieving king. I think the host and his family would have been very accommodating to this pregnant woman. And 
I think that even today, people are kind, they're compassionate, they're generous. And many are involved in, in Christian ministry and service and they're charitable and they're filling shoeboxes and they're helping families in need and they've taken angel tree families and supported them. And all of those things are wonderful. But they don't mean we're born again. Because compassion, as wonderful it is, doesn't produce or even reveal conversion. Matthew 7. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. And I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now understand this. We all break God's laws. The only ones that don't break God's laws are those who by relationship to Christ have God's law fulfilled. You understand? But what is this saying? It's saying you can do some really good things. Some even apparently spiritual things. Some generous things. Some kind things. You can give to the poor. You can feed the homeless. You can provide shelter to someone who is living in a tough situation. But none of those things equal salvation. They could be evidence that you've been born again, but they're not proof, you see. So is your assurance of salvation today? Well, let me ask it this way. What is your assurance of salvation based on today? And if it's based on anything you do, good works, charity, generosity, hospitality, all wonderful things. But if it's based on anything you do, like this host, you might be missing Christmas. A third reason the host missed Christmas was that distraction prevents dedication. Verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn child, her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, that's the swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. NIV says no room for them in the inn. Now, doesn't this verse seem to support that traditional view? Mary and Joseph were turned away from an inn with no vacancies and they stayed in a stable. Doesn't it? What do you think, Rick? Does it? You're hedging. I don't think that's what happened at all. First, if you look at this text, where's the word stable or barn? Is that in your version? Don, is it in your version? If so, you got a misprint. It doesn't appear anywhere. Now, I'm going to have to tell you a little Greek here. And I don't think you have to know Greek to know God. But sometimes when we're really studying something, we need to know, okay, what would this word be? Well, first, 
the word that's translated room is a Greek word, tapas. And it doesn't mean a place with a bed that you go in where you can sleep. It simply means a spot or a place. I'm putting this Bible on the tapas on this desk. It's a location. It's a spot. It's a place. Now, the Greek word that's translated in is kataluma. And it simply means a place to stay. It can refer to different kinds of shelters. It's not, a, it's not a wrong translation to say in, but it could also say house or guest room. So you look at, okay, well, how is this word used by this writer in other places? Well, in Luke twenty two eleven, Luke, writing the gospel, refers to the Cataluma as the upper room as the place where Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples. And there's a completely different word used by Luke to refer to a commercial inn. And that word is pandokion. And that means public lodging place. Literally, it means all receptive. Pan means all. So it meant everyone's welcome. And in Luke 10, he uses that very word for the place where the Samaritan dropped off the injured Jewish man and paid for his care. A commercial inn. Now another argument from just circumstances is that Bethlehem was a small village. It was not on a major trade route. Population certainly less than a thousand. It wouldn't have had a commercial inn culturally. Because when people traveled through that town, they would have stayed with whom? With family, with friends, or with people who opened their doors to practice hospitality according to Jewish law. Now, let me show you an image. Okay, this is, this is a diagram of a one-room Jewish house. It had... It would have had an upper area. You can see this large area. It would have had some stairs or it may have been, you know, reclined. It may have just been dropped down. There you, there you see the steps right there. And this area, there's a door, but behind that door would have been where the stable is. It would have been where animals were kept at night. Because, see, the animals were tied up outside during the day. At night, they were brought in. They were brought in because their body heat would help warm the house. And also, they were brought in so they couldn't be stolen by thieves. Now, often, this lower part would have begun first being dug into a hillside. It could have been a cave. And then later on, you know, these are, these are common folks, pretty poor folks. As they could afford it, they would add on space and build another room. But it began as two rooms, generally. Now, many homes had a third room. And this third room is that Cataluma. You can see it right there. A guest room. But it likely opened from the outside. It could have been at a higher level. It might have been up on the roof, in fact. But this was a space reserved for guests because it was so common for travelers to come by and stay. Now, this room in the middle, the family room, or the living room, was where 
they lived, cooked, slept, ate, did everything. And the animals were just down below, down here. And usually this was at a lower level and may have been tucked into a cave as well. Now, when Mary arrived, she likely stayed in the crowded family room. Like the relatives did when you have a house, like the one I grew up in, people slept everywhere. You didn't have enough beds for people. Who got to sleep in the beds? Only the adults. Kids were everywhere on pallets. Take it from me, they're not soft. But it's possible there were so many pressed in that room. See, the the guest room was already full. The family room may have been full. She might have been pushed into the stable to sleep. Why? Well, she was almost full-term pregnancy, right? She traveled at least 80, maybe 100 miles. That would take four to five days. Usually you could travel about 20 miles a day on foot. A woman that's pregnant, how many of you have ever been real pregnant? How fast could you walk? She may have ridden a donkey, but also there's no donkey in the story. Do you see that? So it may have taken her eight or 10 days to get there. And so guess what? Like in my house at Christmas, first come, first served, right? So it's occupied. The guest room is occupied. It's interesting, I've been to Israel twice. Hope to go back again. But the birthplace of Jesus is inside a church today, the church of the nativity. And so you go up, it's an, it's an Orthodox church, which, you know, has, it's, it's very fancy, But to get to where Jesus was born, you go around behind the altar and you go down steps and you enter a cave. And the cave is about, it's probably 10 or 12 feet deep at least, maybe 15 feet deep because usually we'll gather and we'll sing a hymn in that cave. But you you can see the place where Jesus was born. You can see where the manger was. Now, unfortunately, it's been covered over with marble in this area, and so you can't see the original, but you can see the cave, the limestone walls, and where smoke has stained the walls from fires being there. But he was laid in a manger. You see on this, on this picture, there's two mangers, and these two mangers are on the upper level. Remember, the stable is below. Now, maybe they were like that. Perhaps they were down here, somewhere in the wall. That's not really important. But the manger was just a dugout place where hay or grain would be put. So it was a convenient place for a baby to be laid on top of straw. These people didn't have all the accoutrements that we have. My grandson has, is staying with me this weekend with Leanne and me. I better say her first. She's, and it's amazing how many doodads they have for babies monitors and here, put them in this to bathe them. And, you know, you've got all this stuff. Here's a gate, you know, that they can't go on the stairs. You know, I lived in a one-story house, but otherwise, if you lived in a two-story, it'd be, watch out, there's stairs. (laughs) 
so they, they didn't have that kind of stuff. They couldn't have afforded it anyway, but it didn't even exist. Now, maybe there were wooden boxes or containers, but wood was scarce and valuable. It is today. It was used for doors. It was used for tools. But mangers could be made cheaply. All you needed was a chisel and a hammer, and you just dug it out of the floor, out of the wall, as it shows in this image. Now, here's another thing I think. I don't think that the Christmas story is a story of indifferent, uncaring people treating a very pregnant young woman in an unfeeling fashion. I don't think so. I do think it's the story of a busy, preoccupied homeowner who did all he could to show hospitality to a pregnant 15-year-old who was about to give birth far, far away from her mother, her family, her friends. I think that's the Christmas story. I think it's likely they called in a midwife, in fact. And if not a midwife, then who would have gathered to deliver the baby? You know, we see these pictures where like Joseph is the one delivering the baby. But you know, even when people were born at my time, what happened to the men? Sent them out. Now me, I caught mine, you know. But that's a fairly recent thing. Well, my children are grown now, but 20 years ago, it was fairly new. Men were ushered away. We don't even know if Joseph found a place to sleep on a pallet. He may have been sleeping outside somewhere. But he doesn't appear at this point. Someone helped. And this was a house, I think, full of other women that would have gathered to help. Now, maybe she was sleeping in the family room and they said, let's go to the stable where it'll be more private. Because in the family room were lots of kids and people of all ages and men. And so they said, let's go over here where the animals are and we can get a little privacy here. And so I think some kind people delivered the Christ child without knowing who he was. I don't think the host was cruel or unkind. Just very busy, preoccupied with making guests as comfortable as possible in a very crowded, very small house. And I think all of them missed Christmas. We miss Christmas when our minds are so filled with movies and music and what's going on in the news, when our lives are so saturated with sports and hobbies, when our schedules are too crowded with tasks and responsibilities that we have no time to know Jesus. When we don't have time to develop intimacy with our Savior, the Messiah. Are you too preoccupied today? Thoughts and plans, too busy with obligations. You don't really have time to pray or to read your Bible. You can hardly attend church. I know I, I figure most people today come to church once or twice a month. It's just not a very high priority with so many other things to do. There's all kinds of activities and there's sports and there's shopping and when am I going to cut my grass? 
much. I certainly don't have time to be in a small group or share my life with others. I can scarcely engage in worship. I've got to get up in the morning, get in a hurry to be on time for work. Is your life too noisy to hear the still, small voice of God speak to you? He's always speaking. How often are you listening? You will never know Christ. You will never hear God unless, as the song before I came up said, unless you make room. Are you too distracted by matters of this world to be devoted to Jesus? If so, you're missing Christmas. It can change. Today can be the first day that you start living a new life and you make room for what truly matters, what matters eternally. And you recognize what is of little importance compared to knowing the Savior. Counselors, if they'll come here to the front, you might want to come and start a new step you want to take by talking with someone, having them pray for you. As usual, they have oil. They can anoint you with oil and pray for healing. But they'll be here to talk with you today to remain as long as you need. But let me urge you. Don't experience our culture's Christmas and miss out on the Messiah. Father, show us our lives. Help us set the right priorities so that we don't let the urgent crowd out what's truly important. In your son's blessed name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have any questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.